This show is supported in part by you, by patrons, by people who go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. And thank you everyone who has pitched in. We are almost at our major milestone, which is $1,000 a month in funding, all from people who listen to the show and want to support it. That is so great because if we reach $1,000 a month, that will easily pay for a plane ticket every month or so to go out and grab a story from the field, which would really improve the show. And we're almost there. And if you become a patron, you get the show one day early, no advertising, and you get extras. Like when there are interview segments that are only parts of the interview, you get the whole interview, stuff like that. Go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart to learn more and to pitch in. And to everyone that already has, thank you. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 60. Unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. In 1963, one of the most iconic episodes of television scared the hell out of everyone tuned into The Twilight Zone. It was a short story titled Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Now, in the episode, William Shatner plays Bob Wilson, a man who hasn't flown since having a nervous breakdown the last time he was on an airplane. And after receiving therapy for his fear of flying, he's trying again with his wife, Julia, played by Christine White. I can... Honey, what is it? The emergency window? You want to move? No, no, no. Doesn't matter. What's the difference where I sit? It's not the seat, it's the airplane. So in the show, we watch Bob board and try to light up a cigarette, which you could do back then, but only once the plane was in the air, you know, for safety. And as he tries to settle into his seat, all the normal business of getting a plane ready for takeoff just keeps cranking up his anxiety. cured man, am I? Honey, you are cured. Now, Dr. Martin wouldn't let you fly if you weren't, would he? I suppose not. I mean, if you weren't well, when they shut the door for takeoff, Bob jumps up, snaps his neck around, and it's obvious he's barely keeping it together. Bob, I'm not going to let you... Cabin door secured. What? Just a little abject cowardice, that's all. I'm going to be all right. But Bob does keep it together. And everything seems fine. It seems like he has overcome his fear of flying. Until, well, <laughs> until the plane flies into a storm and a monster lands on the wing and begins tearing the guts out of the engine. And of course, Bob, since he can't stop looking out of the window, is the only person who sees it. 
such a great episode of the twilight zone directed by richard donner who went on to direct the lethal weapon movies and and the tension just keeps building and building as the monster keeps tearing the plane apart and no one believes our hero because of his history with airplanes and the storm is so bad that you know he sees it but by the time someone gets over to the window the the monster has faded into the background or gone up into the clouds or something in 1983 a remake of this episode was part of the twilight zone movie and in that remake Jonathan Lithgow plays the man afraid of flying. There's a man on the wing of this plane! Not much else has changed, except the engines are jet engines in 1983 instead of propeller engines. There's lots and lots of music, and there's hardly any in the original episode. And Lithgow's freak out when he finally gets his hands on a gun and blows out the windows of the plane trying to kill the monster. It is somehow even more over the top than Shatner's. It's an iconic moment in American television, and it could easily be remade today. In fact, Saturday Night Live did a spoof of the original 1963 episode in black and white in 2010 with Jude Law playing the part of Bob Wilson in which the monster is grilling on the wing and using exercise equipment. Oh, no, it's exercising. It's doing this. It's exercising. It's exercising. Sir, stop it. Calm down. Nothing is out there. But you can't see it. It's toning up. It seems healthy and dangerous. Sir, do you <laughs> I think this short story has remained popular for so long because we're all at least a little bit afraid of flying. And even when we, when we pretend like we're not, it just takes one of those really strong bits of turbulence, something that really jostles the plane, makes you descend really quickly or go up really quickly. And whenever that happens, I always think of this monster on the wing every single time. But for me, flying is really never that big of a deal. I'm not ever really that afraid of what's going on. But I know for many people, the fear of flying is crippling. And some people refuse to get on board an airplane for any reason. But they would love to be able to fly, to visit relatives or to go to places far away in convenience instead of taking a car or a train or a boat. You know, they want to get there in an amount of time that will allow them to quickly reach someone maybe who is sick or maybe go somewhere far away they've always wanted to visit. And of course, airlines want those people to be able to fly. And according to former commercial airline pilot Tom Bunn, that's why many major airlines tried to come up with programs to rid potential passengers of their fears in the 1970s. So, uh, Captain Tom Bunn, how long, how long were you flying? Are you still flying? No, they don't trust you after 65. <laughs> I'm almost 80. Uh, yeah, I flew with the Air Force seven years and then switched. Tom flew passengers to and fro in commercial aircraft for 37 years for both Pan Am and United. And in the Air Force in the 1960s, he flew F-100 fighter jets, nicknamed Lead Sleds, because they really couldn't glide all that well, and without their engines, as he put it, 
they tended to fall out of the sky like rocks. It, it was a wild airplane. Now, Tom told me that in 1975, Truman Cummings with Pan Am started a course for people too afraid to fly in the hopes that the airline could teach those people how to deal with their fears. And Cummings asked Tom for help. It, it, was, it was a groundbreaking course, but it still didn't help a lot of people because um, it was based on relaxation exercises. We took people up um, on their so-called graduation flight at the end of the course, and they were doing the relaxation and the breathing just like we taught them, and, and still in a state of panic, many of them. So I kept saying to him that, you know, we needed to add cognitive behavioral therapy techniques to it. He said, yeah, we will, but it never happened. So in 82, I set up SOAR and added cognitive, and it did help some, but there were still people who it didn't work for. Um, what happens is that in some cases, people's arousal... Unhappy with results based on relaxation techniques, Tom set up his own organization, which he still runs today, SOAR, which at first used techniques from various psychological therapies popular in the 1980s, and it had mixed results. He then moved on to studying anxiety itself and how to manipulate people's oxytocin responses, and then determined to create a course that actually really truly worked, Tom went to graduate school and became a licensed therapist himself. That's when he discovered something, or when he stumbled into something that he decided he would try to use, that really seemed to work marvels. Cognitive reframing. A technique with a history of success in a variety of domains in psychology, from family therapy to dealing with bereavement. And as it turned out, it was also very effective at helping people overcome a crippling fear of flying. Well, reframing is something that was taught in NLP. I think it was originally, it came from some of the legendary therapists who were around in the 1970s, 1980s. Virginia Satir probably was the main person doing this. Um, and uh, NLP then studied some of these really amazing psychologists and psychotherapists and, and, and developed a system to teach it what they were doing to others. So reframing is kind of a way to take a person who is, whose thinking is fixed and throw a monkey wrench into it. it, 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 it it's like... You know, when you shake up a pinball machine, it goes tilt. What we're, what we're doing with reframing is we're shaking their thinking up it, in a way that we use kind of funny logic that throws their thinking into confusion trying to figure out how come what we just said doesn't make sense, but it seems to make sense. So the, the shortest way to talk about reframing is to say it's a play on words that involves entangled logic, and when the person who is on the receiving end of the, of the reframe tries to untangle it, it gives them a chance to at least examine their point of view, maybe change it. So, for instance, let's say you went to Tom and told him you were very hesitant to fly because you feared you might be hijacked as part of a terrorist attack. From a reframe point of view, what's the most likely place for a terrorist to be? On the ground. So if you don't want to be in the same place where a ter terrorist is, get away from the ground, get in the air. Or maybe it's turbulence that you can't stand and you're terrified of the idea of a turbulent flight. Well, the, the best place to be when there's turbulence is inside the plane because the turbulence is outside. Or maybe you're already flying and you thought you had it together, but then the flight gets very, very, very bumpy. 
you hit a bump, you can you start counting them and say, all right, there's only a certain amount of bumps between here and the destination. So if I start counting them, then I know that that's the number behind me and I've got fewer in front of me. Maybe when that door comes down, cha-chonk, and you realize, oh no, I'm going to be in this enclosed space with these strangers for a very long time and I'm stuck. And all of a sudden you feel claustrophobic and trapped. Well, a, a quick reframe would be to think of a place where you would never feel trapped, but you're glad you're not there. Say, North Pole without a parker. If all of this sounds interesting to you and you are deeply afraid of flying, John has a website, fearofflying.com, and they also have an app and a book. The name of the book is Soar. So reframing is one of those tools that has emerged from psychology that just plain works. It's practical, simple, and with practice and repetition, it leads to real change in people with a variety of problems. It works because we rarely question our own interpretations or the meanings we construct when examining a set of facts or introspecting on our own emotional states. So much of the things we feel in anticipation are just best guesses and assumptions, models of reality that may or may not be accurate and will likely pan out much differently than we predict. All of that can lead to stress and anxiety and a host of other negative emotions. If a person can reframe his or her assumptions, then the guesses and predictions will also change, and all of that can lead to a completely different set of behaviors and emotions when anticipating or experiencing a situation that used to be a source of unwanted thoughts and feelings. In addition, it can lead to success where before there was a high likelihood of failure. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we are exploring reframing with Robert R. Morris, a scientist who has created a new startup with a new app called Coco, a tool and a social network built around crowdsourcing reframing and the idea that reframing can change us all for the better. You'll learn more in the interview after this break. The You Are Not So Smart podcast is sponsored by Casper Mattresses, obsessively engineered American-made mattresses at a shockingly fair price. And now you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash so smart and using the code so smart. Now look, you spend a third of your life sleeping. Let's make sure you're doing it on a good mattress. Casper brings together two comfy technologies for better nights and brighter days, latex foam and memory foam. So they've got just the right sink, just the right bounce, no matter how you sleep. They've got a risk-free trial and return policy. They will deliver it right to your door. You can try it for 100 days, and if you're not happy, they will pick it back up. At the store, maybe you'll get a minute to try their mattresses. With Casper, you actually get to sleep on it. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Comparing that to industry averages, that is an outstanding price point. So get $50 toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash so smart and using the code so smart. Terms and conditions apply. Oh, you know I love the great courses, and here's one that I think you need to have in your life. Understanding the mysteries of 
of Human Behavior, taught by Professor Mark Leary at Duke. This is a course all about all those things in human behavior you've always wondered about, and you want to know how much does science know about this? What do they have to say? How can I understand it? It's things like solving psychological mysteries. How did human nature evolve? Why do we dream? Are subliminal messages real? Why are some people so full of themselves? Is there such a thing as psychic powers? And then other things that you've always wondered about. Why do people blush? What makes relationships succeed or fail? Why do we care what other people think about us? Are men and women all that different psychologically? And if they are, how? What is it that we know about all of these things? This is what you're going to get in this course. It's such a great course. And you can get it right now, along with eight other courses, at 80% off of their original price by going to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. I love this course. It's one of many that they offer there. They have 500 courses on things from science to history to art to psychology to whatever you're interested in. They've been around for 25 years, and you can get every single course, which is actually a lot of lectures. Each course is a lot of individual lectures available on DVD, CD, streaming, digital download, or on an app. So if you want to get eight of these courses at 80% off, including this one, Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior, the Hidden Motivations Behind Our Basic Decisions, and all the other things that shape us and make us who we are, go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That is thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. Our guest in this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast is Robert R. Morris. He earned his degree in psychology from Princeton University, his PhD in media arts and sciences from MIT. He researches things like crowdsourcing, computer-based interventions for mental health, design, and technology. He is an award-winning designer and creator of cool things. He's been featured in Wired and Time and BBC and the Boston Globe. He is now the co-founder of Coco a social network and an app that is built all around the idea that you can crowdsource reframing a social network built around actually trying to get everyone to enhance each other's mental health using all these little nudges and tricks and things that he's learned from his time at MIT and Princeton. It's really fascinating stuff. Let's pick his brain. Well, let's just start talking about all, all your stuff. So uh, you started out getting a degree from Princeton, and then you started playing around with computers. What, what was going on there? Yeah, so I got a degree in psychology at Princeton, and then I actually spent uh, two to three years doing uh, psychology research of various kinds. I, I worked on some brain imaging research projects, uh, at Harvard and Mass General Hospital in Boston, um, looking at all kinds of things. We were doing some research on the neural underpinnings of deception and lying, which was really cool. We also looked at uh, some clinical uh, neuroscience projects where we were looking at uh, reward circuitry in individuals with depression or cocaine dependency. Uh, so I played around in psychology as a researcher for a while with the intent of going off to do neuroscience or um, some kind of clinical neuroscience. And I started at UCLA and 
I think at heart, I've always been a designer and a builder, but I just didn't know it. I was always kind of afraid of math, and I stayed away from engineering classes as you know as best I could. But uh, I would always kind of come to my psychology mentors with these gadgets and these weird contraptions I had built, and they didn't really know what to do with me. Um, and I really wanted to use technology in a way that could make a profound difference in how mental health treatment is uh, proliferated um, across the world. And I think that I thought there was a huge opportunity to do that. Um, but in traditional psychology departments, at least the ones I was looking at, uh, there wasn't a lot of design or innovation beyond kind of incremental sort of theory building uh, approaches. And so I found this program at MIT uh, as part of something called the Media Lab, which kind of lets a lot of random misfits sort of come to this place and uh, use whatever they can with uh, I mean, with uh, engineering and computer science um, to build really uh, innovative, interesting uh, applications and interventions. So I, I went there with the hopes that I could find some way uh, to develop skills in computer science and engineering to create better computer-based interventions for mental health and well-being. Well, that's a really interesting like motivation and passion because I think that the more I've learned about stuff too, the more I see that there are a couple people here and there who are trying to go beyond just learning and and building a bit, trying to, um, and building a better understanding, but also trying to say, well, look, there are some things we do already know that may be useful in actually changing our institutions or changing our lives. You have, I know, um, David Eagleman's very involved in trying to mess around with the legal system in the United States, mm. things like, things like, uh, eyewitness testimony and other kinds of things that we have a pretty good bit of evidence about their efficacy or lack of efficacy. And um, I saw recently that, you know, I know in the UK they have the Ministry of Nudges and then <laughs> I saw that recently that, uh, yeah, and I saw recently they have that the Obama administration issued an executive order to develop our own version of that. That was just yeah, like... Yeah, behavioral this, science, right? And, right, right. Yeah. Um, and I feel like you're kind of in that wave of, hey, I know we don't know in everything and we don't have like this, we can't like build a perfect artificial intelligence and we can't, uh, we don't understand how the mind works in, in, even in, you know, meager detail, but we do know enough to actually do some things and make some good. Is that sort of where you're coming from? Yeah. And I think I might add to that is that just the act of making and getting your hands dirty and building solutions and interventions, uh, is great to do in tandem with theory building because, you often discover things you just never could discover when you're really getting your hands dirty and you're building uh, systems that actually have immediate practical value or practical use. Uh, so that's another thing that kind of attracts me to uh, building interventions and applications that can be used uh, ideally immediately. I think there's, there's still a huge value for building um, theories and better understanding of core problems and also building uh, technologies that can't really be applied now, but maybe have more of a time horizon of five to 10 years. Um, but for me, I kind of am impatient and mm -hmm. I like to build things and give them to people and watch how they react and, and have that transaction of uh, pr producing an artifact and seeing what people do with it is really electrifying for me. And, you know, I think that um, 
what you're doing, and we'll get to to the nuts and bolts of this sort of social network that you're putting together. But it's it's I remember a, a long time ago when when Facebook was becoming really popular, thinking, I wonder if uh, the I wonder if I wonder if psychologists and neuroscientists are aware, and of course, like you know, people who do sociology and anthropology. I wonder if they're aware of this gigantic, you know, um, bank of information about how people work. That's that's mm-hmm. that's being, and it's all so you know pre-quantified and stored and recorded, and and of course, you know, it it has not only has it become studied intensely but now those companies employ you know legion of of professionals mental health professionals and psychologists and other people who study it from the inside out and i think it's sort of incredible that that someone like yourself or and maybe any other organization it would be starting from that place instead of discovering it like like you you're like that's going to be the very idea of this social network is it's going to have that built into it is there are you are you seeing that there's going to be uh are you you going to have people on the inside who study it from the inside out and you're going to invite people to study it from the outside in is that sort of built into what you're doing yeah we're you know we're trying to do that we we have collaborators now who who look at some of the the data and um i work pretty closely with a team at columbia university um and i think yeah that's the way forward is to to have a, a solid research team i think the problem when you're just starting a system or a platform or a social platform is that it's a little bit of a moving target for researchers. Mm, so yeah. I'd love to be collaborating with as many people as possible, but I often have to turn down a lot of requests because you know, what they might want to examine today might end up shifting a little bit uh, in a month even or two months. Uh, we're still in that very frothy stage of startup development where right. things percolate and bubble and you can't really tell there's a there's definitely an arrow and a and an overarching direction that you know we have a vision for but the the nuances of how it all gets built is 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 like you know shifting sand so it's it's hard to do research at this point but i think i think even like facebook has that they run all these experiments but once you get it um scale there's at least enough of stability to extract meaningful information about human behavior from mm-hmm. the system. Mm-hmm. Well, let's rewind a little bit. And, and I, I love how this sort of, I've, I've already heard you talk about this, but I, I want people who are just hearing about it to, <laughs> I love the idea that, and this is a great thing about how uh, just the idea of synthesis and how things that are, things almost always are, almost all the great things come about from somebody escaping their silo. And for you, it was this, uh, it was Stack Overflow, right? Like looking at Stack Overflow and and thinking, oh, wait, this could have other applications. What was that all about? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, I, I had a psychology background and I decided to go to MIT because I wanted to build things. But uh, I didn't have any engineering training. And I mean, I mean no engineering training. I barely knew how to write one line of code. And that was, in retrospect, pretty stupid to just <laughs> jump into MIT, where everyone had this assumption that I could code at the most expert level immediately. Uh, and I certainly could not, and it was very, very difficult. So I'd spent all my time on this website called Stack Overflow, uh, which uh, is a question and answer site for computer programmers. So here I am, my first semesters at MIT, not knowing what the heck I'm doing. I could type in you know, what's going wrong with my code, 
into this system. And it's this really beautiful marvel of collective intelligence. You type in your problem. If the answer is not already there, which it often is, there's this hive of programmers who all come to your aid and help you figure out what's going wrong. And it's all free and it's all beautifully curated. It's, it's just a wonderful example of what can be done when you um, leverage collective intelligence in the right way online. Um, but my big problem was not just, you know, broken code. It was the broken thoughts I had about my broken code. So if my code <laughs> was failing, I'd be like, I'm a failure. Um, it was very, very stressful. And I, I had, you know, depression issues and so forth. And I had a background in, you know, clinical psychology. And it just kind of jumped out at me as I was using this Stack Overflow system, the system to help me debug my code, that maybe I could create something similar to help me debug these negative thoughts. So um, it's the idea that a lot of the kind of source of stress or even anxiety and depression is, is often at root some kind of distorted negative thinking. And there's a style of psychotherapy called cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. which one of the leading assumptions and uh, ideas behind it is that um, we can systematically adjust the way we're thinking about stressful things and by learning to think more realistically, more rationally, um, more adaptively, that is at heart you know, what can help alter our emotional experience. So what I wanted to do was type in, uh, oh my God, I can't you know, write this code. I'm never going to survive here at MIT. I'm an idiot. And have this crowd of people come and help nudge my thinking back into a more realistic manner. I mean, it sounds like really dramatic and uh, histrionic when I describe those kinds of thoughts, but that's literally the thing that was, you know, going through my head. Um, when you're really stressed, um, it's it's often very easy to go down these rabbit holes of dysfunctional negative thinking. And sometimes it doesn't take too much to nudge a person back um, by reminding them of other ways to think about stressful situations. So essentially, I wanted to build this platform where I could have this hive crowd come and debug my thoughts, not my code, <laughs> but my actual thoughts. And right, yeah. it, it was like this really weird, intimate system I started building where these strangers would come at my beck and call and start, you know, rewiring my innermost thoughts um, on demand whenever I wanted. Yeah. And you, I mean, this is, instead of being bugs in code, it's bugs in thinking. This is how you're how, how, you're, how you're looking at it, right? And that, that was, yeah, that's the initial metaphor. Um, it's, it's grown a little bit from there, but that was sort of the, the core idea that popped into my head that I, I just became in love with and obsessed with and started working on. Now, what do you think it is that people are so eager? Now, just, just thinking of Stack Overflow, why is it that people are so eager to rush to people's aid like that when it seems like <laughs> in our non electronic digital lives, you know, we don't, we, we work very hard to not make any eye contact on, at, at the airport. <laughs> you know, like we, I'm always amazed that we can spend like two and a half hours at the airport at, at the airport and, uh, iPort. That's a good, uh, <laughs> a new <laughs> Apple product. That, that come out. <laughs> the, um, I'm amazed that you, cause like when just recently when I went to Boston, I was like, I've been in an, air, in an airport today for at least four hours and I've made eye contact with four people. And it's amazing that you can, that you can juggle that interaction when you're around hundreds of people. But what do you think it is that 
a system like Stack Overflow, a framework like that, people, well, what encourages people? Why do they rush to other people's aid? Why do they want to help so much? And and for no, um, you know, there's no financial gain, and and often it's anonymously. What's going on there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, at first blush, it does seem like this really peculiar um, altruistic behavior that's um, kind of unique to that platform. And why doesn't that exist offline? And um, on closer inspection, there's pretty systematic um, elements to Stack Overflow and other related systems that help encourage and motivate people to contribute and help that aren't purely altruistic. So you, you mentioned, you know, there, there's no financial gain. Well, even on Stack Overflow, there is some indirect financial gain. So there are programmers who may be really bored at their current job and looking to leave, and they just sit on Stack Overflow waiting for that next question to come in. And they rush to it and write the most amazing solution to that computer problem. And then they garner reputation on Stack Overflow. And that reputation for them itself becomes kind of a major bullet point in their resume, which they can then parlay for jobs. Um, A lot of these systems... Collective intelligence systems motivate participation for three reasons. One is love. There is often an intrinsic value of just helping people. So that notion isn't entirely absent, which I'm happy to say. Um, There may be love of just solving computer problems, for example. There's intrinsic reward to doing the task. So there's love. Uh, There's money, which can be indirect or indirect. Um, And... There's also a a variety of elements that relate to social reputation and coinage uh, of of various kinds. So um, even in a system like Stack Overflow, you can have very complex um, social casts and reputation based on your prowess at helping other people. And people are motivated to uh, boost that over time. So Mm -hmm. these platforms are very carefully engineered to leverage other motivational um, attributes beyond just hoping people are nice and will jump on and help. So yours, and that all makes sense. And um, I, I dig that even I, I, that even though you're working on a platform that is devoted to sort of altering one kind of behavior, one kind of thinking skill, that even the platform itself also has all of its little bits and pieces that are in, in themselves informed by other things we've learned about behavior. So it's, it's just this giant layer cake of uh, behavioral modification up, up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're talking about your project is based on the idea of cognitive reappraisal and, mm-hmm. or also it's called um, reframing. A lot of people have heard it as reframing. Mm-hmm. And so for someone who's never heard of this, what is that? Yeah. So reframing is this basic idea that we can alter the thoughts we have about stressful situations and thereby alter our emotional experience. Um, So, um, you know, if the content of our thoughts is what affects how we feel, um, so if you imagine someone just got laid off from a job, um, that event itself doesn't necessarily mean someone's going to be despondent. It's their appraisal and interpretation of getting laid off that is often one of the most important aspects in that sequence of emotion. So some person may get laid off and they may think, uh, great, I didn't like it there anyway. My boss was kind of a jerk. I kind of wanted a break. I have a couple new jobs I'm curious about. Um, So they may have all these narratives in their head that are framed very positively. 
um, someone else might get laid off and they might immediately interpret that as they are unemployable, they are weak, they are not intelligent, and so they may have a negative frame. And the idea with reframing is that we may have a choice over what narrative we wrap around a given situation and we can systematically consider alternatively alternative interpretations that are just as realistic and plausible, but that change our emotional trajectory in pretty profound ways. And, and this is not, you know, a, a modern idea. This dates all the way back to Roman Stoic philosophy. You see it in literature all the time. You know, it's, uh, it's, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so, mm. you know, the Hamlet quote. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a pretty well-trodden idea that uh, the way we think about events is really the crux of the matter and how we feel about something. Mm -hmm. And we have some power to at least think more flexibly about uh, negative situations. We don't have to be stuck in a negative uh, rut. Right. And it's, it becomes such an echo chamber and a, and a loop, you know, because you can, the oftentimes you're not working out a solution. You're just repeating and mm -hmm. looping and looping and looping and making yourself feel worse and worse. And I, I like the idea that you've, you're trying to build a framework here to knock somebody out of it. And, and one of the things that I thought when I, when you first spoke about this was um, I think about, you know, a lot of time I, I like to, one of the things I'm most interested in are explanatory styles and how we kind uh -huh. of, we kind of, wherever we are in our lives, we, all have our unique explanatory style. Maybe we're broadly similar and we can be categorized, but when you get down to individuals, it's really nuanced and, and there's so much that goes into it. it. It's, it's a lot of nature, a lot of nurture, a lot of life experience, a lot of cultural influences, genetics, all sorts of stuff. And it seems like I know when I'm down or I have decided something is one way or another, that when someone else shows me that they can, that you can look at it another way, it's almost as if, I'm locked into my explanatory style and then I can borrow someone else's explanatory framework for a moment. And like all of these explanatory styles are distributed across the population. And if you could use a, in a social network to quickly yank people who have a more beneficial explanatory style to uh, sort of lend their lens over to someone else for a moment it could really be helpful. And it seems like that's exactly what you're building here. Is, it, is that sort of... Yeah, that's a great... Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. Absolutely. And I like the idea of, you know, always using computer metaphors um, if possible. So it is like, you know, your processor gets stuck in a loop, an infinite loop or something. Um, but you have access to all these other people who have spare cognitive capacity. They're not the ones stressed out. When you're stressed, it's very hard to think flexibly, creatively, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. with poise. Um, so in social situations, this happens naturally all the time. If you have a really good buddy and you get fired, you get laid off and you're one of those people who only perseverates on the negative, they might remind you of, you know, how much you hated your boss. And with a little bit of tact and the right kind of persuasive rhetorical style of delivering that novel explanatory style, you can really snap someone out of a, a negative mood state pretty profoundly. Yeah. I was looking at some of your examples and I was really, I was struck how I was like, wow, that is a better way to look at it. Like, um, you have one that is, uh, about someone being nervous before they give a talk and that their heart is racing. And then I think everyone is going to know that they're is going to think they're nervous or dumb or a fraud or whatever. Mm -hmm. And some of the reframes are, are that, um, 
that not everyone will notice that you're nervous. And those who uh, do notice will have empathy because they probably feel that, that way themselves. And there's uh, another one says that my, the one that really got me was, well, a racing heart suggests you have an active mind and your body's preparing itself for success. And I was like, wow, that really made me feel better. <laughs> like, and I wasn't even having this problem. And the, the, I see that there's benefit just like in stack overflow for possibly seeing your own, pro- your problem already being there and someone already reframing it before you even get a chance to type it out. Cause there's that sense of, of sharing, you know, a lot of what bothers me when I have problems is thinking that I'm the only person that's ever thought this before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, and that help. So there's, there's several levels of help that are possible. And I like the idea that there's not just one positive way to reframe something. There's a, there's an almost infinite number of ways to look at a situation and you can sort of pick and choose what works best for you. Um, and before I just go crazy talking about it, we probably should just actually explain. So this is a thing that you're making called <laughs> call, called Coco. Um, so what is Coco? And if you could sort of take me through what someone's experience with Coco would be like. Yeah, I think that's the best way to explain it is to to share like an anecdote or something. But really briefly, it's a crowdsourced approach to well-being and mental health. And it works not by using therapists or trained counselors, but as we've been talking about, it works by leveraging the collective intelligence of of many people on the network. Um, So it does resemble a lot of social networks and that's by design. I think there's, uh, we we well know that there are incredibly engaging properties to social networking. And and I truly believe that the the principles that keep our eyes glued on Facebook and Instagram 24 hours a day can be redirected uh, to something a little more beneficial. Um, But uh, so just like a social network, you can post content onto the network and you can respond as well. Um, there's a social feed. Um, but if you're a user, so I'll just go through a story of a user. This just happened yesterday, I think, on our network. Uh, it was a pretty cool example. And it's, it's one where it shows that this kind of style is not necessarily just for people struggling with depression or anxiety. It can be helpful for really anyone. Um, so there was a girl who posted about... Being a really good student, she gets really good grades. She raises her hand in class all the time, but her interpretation was that the teachers were ignoring her and she was getting really unmotivated. And she thinks like, the more I try, it seems like the more the teachers ignore me. And so that was her negative thought. She types it into the little mobile phone app and sends it out. And uh, within minutes, this crowd comes back and they just offer alternative interpretations. And, and so some of the ones that came back that I really liked is, you know, teachers are crafty and they often can't, you know, show their cards and they may, you know, think you're the best student and, and you're amazing, but they may actually be trying to look really um, dispassionate so they don't get accused of being playing, playing favorites. Um, there are all sorts of people talking about how enthusiasm and motivation and energy are, are good things. Um, no matter what. Um, but this simple idea that I think, uh, you know, a young high school student might not realize that teachers can't play favorites. And even if you're their favorite student, they can't really show their cards, um, could profoundly affect how this person views her classroom experience. Um, so it's really great to see that. But that's, that's sort of an example. You can go on, post a negative thought and get some interesting insights back. Um, there's a flip side to this network too, which 
turns out to be probably more important. And that is that same student can go on the network and start helping other people. So she can see someone else may be stressed about a paper deadline and she may be able to compose some reframes about uh, ways that it's not as catastrophic as this person is imagining. And this act of helping other people over and over and over and over again uh, seems to be creating this sort of cognitive inertia for a lot of our users where they say that then offline when they're faced with a stressor, this kind of mode of thinking, this mode of what's, what are all the angles that I can think about this and what are some of the positive and realistic ones that I may be forgetting, that kind of reflex kicks in more automatically. Uh, and we see some data showing that the people who help others the most are the ones who get the most psychological benefits from this wow. network. So there's this really beautiful network effect where the more you help others on the network, the more you're helping yourself. You're just going to the gym more often, uh, the mental gym, as it were. Right. And yeah. um, uh, so that's kind of how it works. You, you, a lot of people kind of go on and post a lot about themselves at first. They get some responses, hopefully good ones. And then there's a reciprocity effect. They kick in. And then a lot of people sort of transition into helpers. They get kind of addicted to this. Um, process of solving these little mind puzzles for other people and feeling good when they've helped someone. And then they start to intuit that this is a maybe a good form of mental nutrition they can practice regularly uh, to help them in their own lives. That is so cool. The idea that the, the, the helpers are the people who are getting the most benefit and that everyone on both sides of this thing is learning a new skill. Like the, this is not just um, candy crush, you know, even, you know, they're like, mm -hmm. you're like, you, with it, you know, with candy crush, you are learning a skill set, but with this, you're learning a, a really amazing set of skills that, that you can use without the app that you can, that work in meat space. And that's, was that always something that was uh, intended or did this sort of emerge and surprise you? That was really, really surprising actually. So when I first built the prototypes for this, I assumed no one would volunteer to be respondents. Um, I wanted to see whether we could get just an average lay person to do this rather than a therapist at, at first. Um, so my first prototypes, I actually paid people to respond. So I used this service called Mechanical Turk, which uh -huh. is this uh, Amazon uh, online digital marketplace. And it's really cool because it has an API, which in computer speak means I can kind of orchestrate everything that happens on there programmatically. Um, so the first versions of this were really just a one-sided network in the sense that the use case was you post about what's stressing you out and then these four higher people for maybe a, a buck or two would come back with all these insights for you that hopefully would help. Um, but what happened was I, I always had like a little comment box that these workers could, could write and you know if the task wasn't working or they were confused, they could tell me. But I kept getting these messages from people saying, this was really interesting. I didn't realize I had these bugs in my thinking. Uh, can I do this more often? Is there a way I can do this for free? So uh, that insight sort of led me to think that there may be some value and pleasure and, and clinical merit to opening up the network so that um, people, even people who have pretty serious depression symptoms, um, and some of them were in some of my experiments and clinical trials, even, even they can go on and be respondents and get uh, benefit from it. And it was only later looking through the data that we actually found that respondents in general were the ones getting the most psychological benefit 
it's you know i love like you know i remember reading uh some of clay shirky's books and mm-hmm. and thinking you know where what are the next applications and i love the idea you know he talks about technology in its essence lowers the cost of something to nearly zero and it changes everything once something once the the, the opportunity costs or other costs are removed and you know you can see that with comment systems and wikipedia and all sorts of things and I, I don't know. I, I think I got to the point where I was like, well, well, we've pretty much done all the crowdsourcing things we'll ever do. Like we figured out the benefits and whatever, but this just seems like such a great way to, to approach a great way to, to use this technology. And it's, I can see like in 10 years, the incredible amount of data you will have collected that could be poured over by, um, academics and also be used by just anyone who's now entering the period in their life where they might be having similar problems or thinking similar things. I mean, you're really doing something that has the potential to, to create real change in the world. It must be very, very exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. I mean, especially when you put it like that, I mean, day to day, we basically see problem after problem. And that, I think that's how every startup is. And if you, you know, aren't very vigilant, um, and you can, and you're just sitting back with your feet up, saying, "Oh, I've built the best thing in the world. I, <laughs> I, my job is done here, and you, you know, um, you're going to fail." So, you know, from my perspective, I see the trees a lot, and um, the details, and all the all the kinks that we're working out. But um, one thing that's really beautiful about the Cocoa app is the community on there is really tight, and um, we try our best to open up the, the product as much as possible to the point where we run a lot of experiments with our users. We show them early mock-ups and drafts. We get their opinions. We have uh, extra discussion forums in the app. Um, so, you know, that's that's a great source of optimism for me is having this huge crowd of people that are incredibly motivated and inspired by the potential of the system and we're all working together, so it's not just the the three of us uh, co-founders kind of toiling in isolation. We are constantly talking to our users in some capacity. Right. And and you, when you when this was being tested, and you've already you've actually well, some people would like to know. I mean, there's going to be people who look at this and they're going to think, please don't quantify us and turn us into androids. But you know, or anything they're going to see this as just purely more tech to. Uh, mess with our interactions but um let's since we've already had an episode about how that's silly uh <laughs> let's i, I want to know for people who may be more th- on the lines of well have they tested this it does this have any real benefit or does it just have you give, make you feel good in the moment like you've done actual uh, clinical testing of this and compared it to, to creative writing or something like that haven't you yeah, so uh, I did do a clinical trial, a large-scale clinical trial with uh, colleagues at MIT and Northwestern, and we really wanted to evaluate the hypothesis that repeated use of such a platform, however you use it, if you post a lot or you just respond, uh, repeated use of this, does this convey psychological benefits over time? And we use something called a randomized controlled trial design, which um, on the surface seems very simple, but it's actually very, very very tricky to get the details right, but the, the simplified version of it was we randomly assigned people to either use a version of the Cocoa platform. At this stage, it was a web-based tool. Um, so some people use that, 
And then other people, the other half were randomly assigned to use something that looked almost identical to it, um, but didn't have any of the active ingredients we thought would be helpful. And that platform just had people post their negative thoughts. So they would go on and it would be almost like a journaling exercise where you'd post what's bothering you and you would describe the situation and the negative thoughts you're having and it would kind of go in a little archive that you could visit. And that in itself is an intervention that's been studied for uh, decades now, actually. It's called expressive writing. And uh, there is some known benefits from just doing that. Um, there's some health benefits, some psychological benefits of contextualizing your negative thoughts and actually writing them down. So our goal was to at least match that or, or beat that. And so we use that as our control condition. It's called an active control and we uh, assessed people's symptoms of depression. Um, we looked at uh, well-being and a, a couple of other psychological measures. And we, we assessed people before the experiment and then after about three or four weeks of use on these platforms. And we did, in fact, see that people who used the COCO platform had significant psychological benefits. And particularly for people who came in with some baseline depression, the COCO platform uh, outperformed the uh, control task. So it held up really well. Um, it also had some benefits for uh, what we call risk factors for depression. So one risk factor is this idea you alluded to earlier of this echo chamber where you're thinking this one negative thought over and over again. So we, we have systems of surveys where we can ask people, you know, how often do you get stuck in a negative thought that you can't escape and these kinds of things. And that can be a risk for depression and even suicidality. And that measure was significantly reduced by repeated use of cocoa. And now we have other researchers looking at correlating different types of behaviors on the network and which ones um, yielded the most pronounced change. Um, with all these things, you have to do a lot of these trials um, to really know what's going on. So. I know I would say the data is still preliminary, even though it's been published. Um, but the other thing that's nice is we're mostly relying on evidence-based theories and techniques that have decades worth of research mm -hmm. um, attached to them. And we have to translate them to fit the technological medium. So they do get changed a little bit, but the spirit of these ideas is still there. And so there is some a priori, um, idea and uh, notion that these techniques should be helpful for people if they're practiced repeatedly. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is just, I just love the idea of this, like in every way. And I, I, uh, I, I think that, you know, what all, what tends to come up more than anything else on the show is that someone saying, or, or even in emails is like, why isn't this being rolled into something practical or why isn't this being rolled into our institutions and why does this still seem so locked up in academia if this stuff is so important and you know there's so much evidence behind it and i like the idea that this is one of these great examples of actually extracting it from the ivory tower and throwing it out there into the world and making use of it so i i wish you so much luck in this and i think we should keep up with what you're doing and um I know people are going to want to know about this and they want to try to get in on the beta or whatever you've got. I know it's not completely ready for the public quite yet. So how, how can people keep up with you and how can they keep up with this project and how can they try to get on Coco? 
Yeah, so the, the best way to get on Coco is simply to go to our website now. So the URL is www.itscoco.com, I-T-S-K-O-K-O.com. You go to itscoco.com, you can enter your email and get in on the, the beta app, which is a really fun experience. So I suggest your listeners to try it because it is this weird frothy state where we're experimenting and we're interacting with everyone who uses the platform. It's all anonymous, but we do uh, have a bi-directional communication channel there. So it's a pretty fun way to experience a new app. Um, so you can go on there. We are pulling people off the waitlist pretty regularly now. And to catch up with me, you can email me at rob at itscoco.com or I'm on Twitter at Robert R. Morris. That's so cool. Look, it is so hard to be a person and the, the fact that you're taking a, a technological approach to making it a little easier to be a person and it's so great and i wish you so much luck so um thank you so much for all this and i look forward to checking you out i'm going to try to get in on this too and play around with coco great nice talking to you On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or talk about a new study that has something to say about decision-making, judgments, or the psychology of reason itself. And in this episode, the study comes from the Research Digest of the British Psychological Society. The headline is, Slot Machines Are More Addictive When We See Them as Having Human-Like Intentions. And this post was written by Alex Fredera. So what we're talking about here is this new research at the University of Milano, Bicocca, and it was published recently in the Journal of Experimental Psychology under the headline, Humanizing Machines, Anthropomorphization of Slot Machines Increases Gambling. The article describes how slot machines are always very, very popular in casinos and elsewhere, and mainly because they have been specifically designed to hijack our psychological weaknesses and have been iterated upon for years, evolving into very efficient flycatchers for our reinforcement behaviors. In fact, these days, all slot machines are designed to encourage you to play all the way to extinction, and that's sort of industry terms for playing until you have no more money left to put into the machine. As Fredera points out, there are a zillion little tricks that play into destructive gambling habits, and slot machines utilize many of them, especially the gambler's fallacy, which is sometimes called the Monte Carlo fallacy. That's the belief that wins and losses must eventually balance out. A string of losses feels like it has to balance out with a win. And each loss, it feels like, is slowly increasing the odds that a win is about to come next. And if you have a zillion losses, and that's where the Monte Carlo fallacy gets its name from a supposed game of roulette there that has kept coming up red so many times, like a like hundred times or something, that people started betting insanely on black because it might have that backwards, but either way, that's what was happening is that people were just sure that it had to balance out in the next run. But the odds are always the same every single time you metaphorically or literally roll the dice or pull the lever. There's no such thing as it's time for it to win. There's no such thing as it balancing out. So this research reveals a new as yet unexplored mechanism that keeps people playing games like this. The researchers divided people into two groups, one of which received a description of how the slot machine works using technical terms, and the other received an identical description that traded the technical terms for anthropomorphic terms, humanizing the machinery. That description 
that humanize the machinery used sentences like, the slot machine can decide whether you win or lose a series of bets anytime she wants. Or another sentence was, sometimes she may choose to make fun of you, leaving you empty-handed for several bets. Later on, researchers found that the subjects who received humanizing descriptions of the machine and the algorithms behind the random payouts, they played longer, 30% longer on average. Of course, no one study proves or disproves anything, and more research must be done. Replications and all that have to happen. And in the end, this is just one pebble on a growing pile of evidence. But it does bring to mind how lots of gambling devices are branded as being controlled by a celebrity. In the article, they point out Michael Jackson slot machines or Spider-Man slot machines. And I've seen Elvira and Elvis slot machines. I did a Google search and found CSI, Deal or No Deal, The Hangover, The Beach Boys, Pawn Stars, and all sorts of other stuff. All of which might encourage people to keep playing because it feels more like an interaction with a human, a socially motivated agent, instead of a cold, unfeeling machine. I was also reminded of addictive video games with random payouts of loot like Destiny and World of Warcraft and Diablo and other things like that, League of Legends. And they all anthropomorphize many of their interactions by making the slot machine-like interactions within that game take place with characters and not with some sort of you know, machine-like device, even though obviously the whole game is a machine. I mean, the whole game is a bunch of computer algorithms being played out by an de- you know, electronic device. So why does this work? Well, we don't know for sure, but some speculation is that the interaction, once anthropomorphized, engages the brain's social associations and processing. And as Dan O'Reilly wrote about all this in Predictable Rational, social situations are processed much differently. So just think about helping your friend move or helping somebody do something like that. And that friend then offers you a beer. Now imagine the exact same situation, but at the end of it, the friend offers you $5. Now it feels weird, right? It feels icky. Or imagine eating Thanksgiving with your family and then everyone putting a $20 under under their plates at the end for the, uh, for your grandmother or whatever, or at the end of a date, handing over a gift card to Starbucks. It's just, you know, social interactions convolute pure financial interactions and financial interactions will convolute pure social interactions. And maybe that's part of what's happening here on some level. But of course, we don't know. More research needs to be done. This is just one study. But if you would like to read the research yourself, I have links to everything at the website. And the headline was slot machines are more addictive when we see them as having human-like interactions. And the study's title was humanizing machines, anthropomorphization of slot machines increases gambling. Letter C. Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. On each episode of the C You Are Not So Smart podcast, cookie. I eat a cookie that my wife Amanda bakes from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. And if we pick and bake and I eat your cookie on the episode, you will get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. And this episode, the cookie comes from Marion Lowe, who sent in a recipe for Herzogi cookies. Truly South African, she says in the email. The email is uh, full of so much (laughs) information that's uh, stuff I've never heard of before. So she says, I've been listening to the You Are Not So Smart podcast for quite a while now. I've always wondered what cookie recipe I would possibly send your way. I was very excited when I heard your episode with the cookie from Zimbabwe because now I know what to send you. 
Herzogis, named for the former prime minister of the Union of South Africa, J.B.M. Herzog. She writes, these were created by the ladies of the Cape Malay community after he promised them voting rights should he come to power. Now, not to be outdone, his opponent, General Jan Smuts, his camp promptly created Smutsies, a slight variation on this cookie. Now, Marion writes that when Herzog came to power, he broke his promise to the Cape Malay women, and they retaliated by creating Twiji Rijits, Little Two-Faces. That's what the translation is. Little Two-Faces, these cookies. Probably the only protest cookie in South Africa, according to Marion Lowe. These Twiji Virijis aren't very popular nowadays, as far as I'm aware at least, but you'll be hard-pressed to find a South African who has never heard and never had a Herzogi. I hope you enjoy them. Kind regards. Thank you so much, Marion. What a wonderful email. And I have these in front of me. And let me tell you, these are an engineering marvel. These aren't simple. Now, I know these aren't exactly a cookie. They're in the cookie world. These are sort of a tart. They look like a little quiche, except they have delicious dessert-like stuff on the inside and on top. And yeah, these are kind of marvelous when it comes to how they're created, how they're constructed. It's a very long and um, maybe could be somewhat difficult process, but I want you to try these because they're so beautiful. They're so nice. They're little tiny, mm, little look, they look like little muffins. They're great. So they're cake flour, granulated sugar, baking powder, salt, butter, eggs, egg yolks, cold water, and then the filling is apricot jam or apricot, depending on where you live, and egg whites, sugar, and shredded coconut. So it looks amazing. There's all sorts of things you have to do. You have to make dough, cut it out, put it in the pan, whisk the egg. There's all sorts of things that have to happen. I am going to try it right now for you. It looks beautiful. It is going to be marvelous. I have my coffee in front of me because I know that this, this works really well with coffee. Here we go. Mm. Oh. Mm. Wow, that's a meal. This looks like mm. this is like one of those things where, like, if you've ever been to, like, you it's like it's like if you're invited to the governor's house, to the governor's mansion, and you um, someone comes along with a platter and says, you know, here's some um, some treats. This is the sort of thing that'll be that you. Oh, you have, you must have. A pastry chef here. Hmm, I'll take one. And then you have to <laughs> sit there and eat it, uh, you know, awkwardly because there's more to this than just one bite. Oh, no. This is quite the, del- the delicacy. Oh, boy. So on the inside, you have that gooey, delicious, fruity stuff. Outside is like a sugar cookie. But on the very top, you have that candied coconut toasted. Ah. Hmm. So good. Mm. This is uh, yeah, this is what I imagine. You know the Monopoly man, the guy on the, on the front of the Monopoly box with the monocle. Like this is, I imagine he's driving. He drives down the road, driving past his properties. Yes, yes, that's Park Place. I've owned that, but yes. And he's got his little pewter dog next to him, and he's petting it. And he's just popping these in his mouth over and over again because this is the level that he's reached. He can have nothing less. He's just. Um, 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 yeah, yeah. These are only for me and none for you. They're so good. 
Oh, I'm going to have one more bite. I shouldn't do that because there's so much to a bite. But here we go. Mmm. 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 Wow. I don't, I don't think I could eat more than one of these a day. Wow. Marion Lowe, what is this? This is so good. I've never really had anything like this before, actually. Um, totally going to make this for Thanksgiving. Sorry, I'm talking with my mouth open a little bit there. Mm. Totally going to make that for Thanksgiving. That's going to blow everybody's mind. And I'm going to tell them this is a South African delicacy sent to me by Marion Lowe. Marion... You have a book headed your way. I am so happy to now be part of this club. I've had cookies from Zimbabwe. I've had Herzogis from South Africa. I love it. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Marion Lowe. I love it. A book is headed your way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one and head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all of the previous episodes of this podcast. You can find links to everything I talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com. I also have written two books about this, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb. You can find them wherever they sell books. Send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I bake your cookie... I will send you a signed copy of one of those books. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. On Twitter, it is Not Smart Blog, and I am at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The music beds are by Banjo Apocalypse, and some of the music beds are by Drew Garraway. Go to Patreon, support us, get us going. Patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Mr. Robert Wilson.